This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 184 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most revered and influential composers of the past century, a pioneer of the music style minimalism, who has crafted groundbreaking operas, ballets, symphonies, and many film scores, including three for which he received Oscar nominations, Kundun, The Hours, and Notes on a Scandal, several for Errol Morris documentaries, including The Thin Blue Line, and most recently, one for Jane, Brett Morgan's terrific new documentary about the early work of primatologist Jane Goodall. I'm talking about the legendary Philip Glass. But first, I sat down at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter with my colleague Ashley Collins, a staff reporter who leads our coverage of legal matters. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. It's been an interesting 11, 12 days or so here. We are not getting a lot of sleep, any of us. And, you know, just covering this whole earthquake that has rocked the film industry and aftershocks of which are being felt far beyond it. And that is, of course, the the Harvey Weinstein saga. He's been a leading producer and distributor in this business for roughly 40 years. He was the focus several days ago of articles in the New York Times and the New Yorker that featured many women alleging that he had sexually harassed, assaulted, or even raped them. Many others have since come forward with their own stories. And virtually all of the industry over which he sort of reigned has excommunicated him, have slammed him. I want to ask you about the reason why it might have taken as long as it did to tell this story. There are a lot of people that are going around suggesting this was an open secret. That's the phrase that people have been using, an open secret in Hollywood. And, you know, one of the accusers even has suggested that the entertainment media deliberately covered this up out of some sort of desire to protect Harvey Weinstein. But I can speak for us here at The Hollywood Reporter. We, for the last, I would say, year and a half since the Roughly when the Cosby stuff came out, we said, should we be, is there anything like this going on in our own backyard? And he came up as a possibility based on some rumors and insinuations and tweets and stuff. We looked into it. We tried, but we could not get anyone to speak on the record as hard as we tried and at great risk to our livelihoods. And, you know, we felt it was an important story to tell, of course, and that if one person said something, a lot of other people would presumably follow. As with Cosby, the floodgates would open. But until you can get that first person to jump, it's very hard. So why, from a legal standpoint, is it so scary for people to come forward and make accusations on the record and also for media outlets like ours to tell this story without having those kinds of people on the record? Cosby is actually a good 
example for this because after those allegations started to come out, he denied them. And one of his accusers, Janice Dickinson, sued him for defamation. And that can just as easily happen the other way, which is what Harvey Weinstein had threatened here. He had threatened to go after the New York Times because of of what it wrote with people on the record. And when you're able to attribute a quote directly to someone else, that lessens some of the liability on the publication, but not all of it. Mm -hmm. So it is a very tricky situation. You don't want to get sued. And then you're dealing with the entirely separate fact that people who have been in situations where they have been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed It's a painful, humiliating, awful thing to do to come forward. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about someone who is as powerful within your industry as Harvey Weinstein is, that makes it even scarier. So I'm actually not that surprised that it took that long for someone to be willing to say point blank, this happened to me. Yes, you can print it. And yes, you can use my name. Some of the people who were on the receiving end of his bullshit over the years have signed, we've since learned, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, in return for being quiet and not going public with what happened to them. They they took cash settlements and went away. How common is that? And how much does that hold at this point, both legally and practicably, in the sense that if they're, you know, one of the people who apparently signed a non-disclosure agreement was Rose McGowan. Rose McGowan has since come out and tweeted, Harvey Weinstein raped me. Is that because somehow the non-disclosure agreement no longer holds up or because we just assume at this point that Harvey Weinstein's not going to sue people who are accusing him because it would only make his situation worse? Unfortunately, I think these kinds of NDAs are a lot more common than we would think. And I don't think they're limited to Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. And I think that is going to start to come out mm-hmm. as we progress through the situation and the web expands. But as to why someone like Rose McGowan would speak out now, I can't guess, you know, I don't know what's going on in her head. But if it were me mm-hmm. and these stories had come out, I would feel safer saying something now mm-hmm. because it's a burden to keep that kind of thing to yourself. And yeah, I think there's a certain degree of it's going to look really bad if he sues any of these people Mm -hmm. because he couldn't sue her for defamation. If it's true, he'd have to sue her for breach of contract, which is just going to make him look like garbage. Right. As if that's not already happening. But you're yeah, it would make it worse. And the other thing is NDAs don't stop people from talking to police or investigators. So if the internal TWC investigators reach out to these people, they're allowed to talk about what happened. If the police reach out to these people, they're allowed to talk about what happened. And in jurisdictions where the statute of limitations isn't an issue, they can go to the police and file a police report. And once that happens, it's public. Like the media can report on the police report without this person ever violating the NDA. So does Weinstein actually have a legal case against anyone at this point? You know, because it seems like whether or not he would pursue it, we know he's threatened the New York Times, but the lawyer who was leading that effort has left him, Charles Harder, who I guess had been the guy behind the gawker, the suit that ended with their evaporation, right? Yeah. But that guy is not, doesn't want to even be associated with Harvey Weinstein, along with the rest of his key legal people, I guess, David Boyes, Lanny Davis, and Lisa Bloom, who I want to ask you about, because you interviewed her for us recently. 
it struck me as extremely bizarre that a woman whose whole brand was representing the victims of sexual predators would, for several days after all of this started coming out, still remain a legal advisor, I guess not formal legal counsel, to Weinstein. What was that about? She was trying to get him to apologize. She said she was tired of people like Bill Cosby and Bill O'Reilly and Donald Trump. The second these accusations surface, they immediately go on the offensive. These women are liars. This never happened. And she told me that she thought if she could get him to apologize, that that would mean something to the women. But instead, what ended up happening, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like she came across as an apologist for him because she's the one that's put out this ridiculous statement like, oh, Harvey's a dinosaur. You know, he was a product of the 60s and 70s and whatever. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are products of the 60s and 70s who don't go around serially harassing or doing worse to people. So I just, you know, even her own mother, Gloria Allred, chastised her for this. It just struck me as extremely bizarre. But but moving on to the thing that you're working on now, from what I understand, you're looking at Harvey Weinstein's contract. And we know he was a very savvy guy in a lot of ways. And it seems like that manifested itself in his contract, because today he's meeting with the board of the Weinstein company, which fired him and which includes his own brother, Bob. And he may actually have something of a case, right? If this TMZ story that they published last week is true, the Weinstein company is in a really tough spot. TMZ says they have seen his contract and there is a clause in there that says if Weinstein treated someone improperly in violation of the company's code of conduct, he had to pay the settlement to that person himself Mm -hmm. and then pay damages to the company. And it was $250,000 for the first instance. $500,000 if it happened a second time, $750,000 if it happened a third time, and a million for each instance after that. And that reportedly would cure the misconduct, meaning they can't fire him. I talked to several lawyers, and none of them have any clue why the company would agree to put something like this in a contract, because it makes it really hard to argue that you had no idea this was going on. I mean, is it possible they just never envisioned any scenario where it would blow up to this extent? Because, I mean, the the bottom line is that aside from having his own last name in the brand of the company, he essentially was the company. I mean, he was the, the reason people worked with the Weinstein Company was because he had great creative taste. That nobody's disputing. I mean, the, the company, first Miramax and then Weinstein Company collectively are responsible for five movies that won the Best Picture Oscar, so many others. And he just had great taste. Bob did the commercial movie side of the company. But, you know, people can go elsewhere to do those kinds of movies. It's harder and harder to find somebody like Harvey to make art house kinds of movies. So do you think they just were willing to take the risk in order to this is like the price of doing business with Harvey from their point of view? One of the attorneys I spoke with said that the company must have felt like it had to do it to keep him and that it wanted to keep him. Mm -hmm. And maybe there was some degree of if he gets to four instances and he's got to start writing million dollar checks, maybe he'll stop doing this. Because it it also was reported that if he hid settlements Mm -hmm. to try to get around having to pay that company this damages, essentially monetary slap on the wrist, that he could get in trouble for that. Well, the fact that this kind of language even existed in the contract suggests they knew that there was some bad behavior. Again, maybe I don't want to say that they knew there was sexual, severely unacceptable behavior, but they knew that he was doing bad things. If they're 
imagining a scenario where there's, well, four settlements or more or whatever. But when they fired him, initially he was, he was I think, suspended essentially or put on a- He took a voluntary he leave. He took a voluntary leave. So then they came back very shortly after as, as more and more came out and pressure built. And they said, a new incident has come to our attention that has caused us to now terminate him. What could that have been that would have made any difference between what, when they first allowed him to take a leave and when they then suddenly felt days into this that they could fire him? Well, what we had been hearing initially was that people within the company knew he was having affairs and believed them to be consensual. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing what a statement like that means is that they were given reason to believe that they were not consensual, which made a difference. To bring this all back to awards, which are not the most important thing in the world, but which are the focus of this podcast, usually I want to talk now about the Oscars and Academy connections to Harvey Weinstein, who was basically synonymous with Oscars for the last 30 years. He, as we say, you know, was not only behind a lot of movies that did very well at the Oscars, he personally won the Best Picture Oscar 19 years ago for Shakespeare in Love, on which he was credited as a producer, unlike the other four that won the Best Picture Oscar and were productions that his company distributed. He is famous for revolutionizing the way people pursued Oscars. It became much more a marketing and publicity effort, and he was better, and he and his team were better than anyone at that. What's happened in the in the last few days is that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which had only expelled one other person in, in its 90-year history, somebody who had loaned his screeners to somebody else, which was against the policy he had signed, that was the only person who had been expelled ever before. Now the board voted on Saturday to expel Harvey Weinstein as well. And this brings up an interesting situation because the Academy is a private organization. So technically, I guess as long as they operate within their own bylaws, they can do whatever they want. As certainly as far as who is or isn't a member of their organization, but they are now wading into territory where they are going to apparently be evaluating the behavior of their members and in some cases disciplining them prior to any due process in the actual legal system because as of now, Harvey Weinstein has not been charged with or prosecuted with anything. So my question is, does he have any recourse with the Academy if he ever chose to pursue it, which seems unlikely? And also, what's going to happen if the Academy now starts going after others? There are some people who have been tried and convicted, like Roman Polanski, who had a sexual interaction with a child and then fled after being convicted, and Stephen Collins, who is an admitted child molester. And then you get into the grayer area where you've got like Nate Parker, who was tried and found not guilty, but more stuff has since come out, or Casey Affleck, where there were settlements. I mean, what is the Academy going to do without getting itself sued here in this situation? Because it's a private organization, I think you're right that as long as they're operating within their own bylaws, I don't think they're liable for any of this. What is going to happen, though, is that it is going to become a very slippery slope. Mm -hmm. If you start kicking out people like Roman Polanski for sexually related offenses, you're going to have people asking, okay, well, what about 
racists? Mm-hmm. What about people who go on anti-Semitic rants? Mm-hmm. Mel who, Gibson is a member. Exactly. Like, where does it stop? Right. And at what point do you have to rewrite those bylaws to include a very specific morality clause? Because they're suggesting in the in the same short statement that the Academy put out on Saturday announcing that Weinstein was out, they said we're continuing to work to develop some sort of like an honor code or moral, or you know, code of honor. But it's sort of strange to me that they kicked him out before doing that, because you would think that then they could say, based on this new code of honor that we've implemented, he has failed to adhere to X, Y, or Z. Instead, he's out, and now they've got to build it around him. And, you know, I wonder if maybe one thing they'll end up doing is saying, we're not going to relitigate the past because you're getting into too too much, but going forward... And this is where I would have thought they would have done this before kicking him out. Moving forward, anyone who is found to do this or have done this or whatever is gone. So what do you think is the likeliest way they'll address this without getting themselves caught any further in a sticky mess here? I think they had to act quickly Mm -hmm. because they didn't want to be President Trump not denouncing Nazis in Charlottesville. Like this is something that everyone in the industry is up in arms about. Mm -hmm. This was a no brainer Mm -hmm. on their part. They had to. And you can't make major policy decisions as quickly as you can make a very black and white decision like that. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things take time. And I think they probably are having discussions about, OK, should we make this retroactive? Mm-hmm. It's going to be a nightmare either way. Right, right. Like either it's going to be a ton of work for them essentially going through the histories of all of their members 8,427 <laughs> members some of them are over 100 years old that means they've been in this business a long way back back to the point where casting couch interactions were not widely deemed unacceptable so there's a lot of skeletons in the closet that they're going to have to potentially address here i think the smartest path forward would be implementing some kind of a complaint procedure mm-hmm. if you've had and experience with racism, sexism, harassment, assault with someone who is a member of the academy, here is how you let us know about that, and then we'll consider it. And presumably they'll have to also figure out if those kinds of accusations can be made anonymously, or if the accused gets to face their accuser, what sort of process there will be. I mean, I, I will say I talked to one person who, one of the few survivors of the Hollywood blacklist of the McCarthy era, the Red Scare, and not to in any way suggest that, you know, they're very, they're very different situations. But the person said, what Harvey Weinstein did is obviously horrendous, but we may be heading towards another situation where there are a lot of unintended consequences, people pointing fingers at other people without, you know, sometimes with justification, sometimes not. And before you know it, this can devolve into something even worse than what it is now. So I'm not sure myself what the right thing or wrong thing here is, but clearly a lot of people have some thinking to do. And I'll just close by mentioning that, you know, for those of you, again, who are listening out of interest about awards, the Weinstein Company had only a few plausible contenders to begin with before any of the Harvey stuff came out. And those films are now sort of in limbo in the sense that, you know, who knows if anyone will work with the Weinstein Company, if they'll still be in business any, you know, beyond the next few days. But all of what's happened is certainly not going to benefit Wind River, which was their primary 
hopeful before all of this with Jeremy Renner, the directorial debut of Taylor Sheridan, who had been nominated last year for writing Hell or High Water, and then also The Current War, on which Harvey originally was credited as a producer before pulling his credit off of that before he was fired. I think maybe he saw the that he would be taking flack and so better to distance himself from it, although I hear he always believed he would survive this as an you know at the company. So this is all obviously the least important stuff in the grand scheme of things, but since this is a podcast about awards, we'll just note that really the only movies that this could have any direct impact on this season are Wind River and The Current War. So with that, Ashley Collins, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now for my conversation with Philip Glass. I sat down with the 80-year-old one week ago in a suite in the Lowe's Regency Hotel in Hollywood, just hours before the documentary Jane had its Los Angeles premiere at the Hollywood Bowl, accompanied by a live orchestra performing Glass's score. Over the course of our conversation, he and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How the son of a radio repairman first fell in love with music, wound up studying at a conservatory at the age of eight, and entering college at 15. Why, after graduating from Juilliard, he went to Paris, and how, once there, he ended up working with two teachers who changed his life, Nadia Boulanger and Ravi Shankar. Why, even after the first performance in 1976 of Einstein on the Beach, a groundbreaking five-hour opera that he composed, he continued to spend most of his days as a cab driver. What, in his view, minimalism is and is not, and why he is not always thrilled to be so closely associated with it. Why he became, in the words of one journalist, the most collaborative composer since Stravinsky, working with everyone from David Bowie to Martin Scorsese. And how he came to be a part of and approached the composition of a score for Jane. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Glass, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We always just begin with a basic one. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and my father had a record shop and a radio repair shop. I grew up in the music business, actually. Yes. <laughs> uh, by, at the age of 12, I was responsible for keeping the inventory, and by 15, I was a record buyer for the store. My brother and I did that. I left very early for... College. I went to the University of Chicago when I was quite young, and I began music really when I was six or seven. And but I began studying at the Peabody, which was a great music conservatory. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because you were the youngest student they had there. At, you, well, at the conservatory, yes, because I was studying flute, and they didn't have that in the preparatory division. There was no one to teach that, so I was put into. I was the youngest person in the conservatory, but that was just an accident. But that was my instrument uh, until I went to Chicago and I began doing piano then. But I want to ask you, you know, when you went off to the Peabody Conservatory, as you say, six or seven years old, you have to be pretty good to just go there. So what was your... Not so much so. You have to remember in those days, uh, the idea of music education being valuable and I would say even essential, Mm -hmm. that was a much more uh, well-known idea. My mother was a school teacher, so there was not a lot of money around for things like lessons. Mm-hmm. I was allowed to have lessons with I would rather have had lessons in two instruments, so I was only allowed to have one. But really, uh, music education was considered uh, a collateral advantage. It was part of education, and for all the, all the right reasons. And when we began dismantling that in our country, when I went to high school, you were given an instrument. You didn't even have to own one. 
and I found that to be very true around a lot of the country. And people played in marching bands. It didn't matter. Yeah. It didn't matter. And then at the same time, it's important to remember, this is in 1946, 47, 48, there was a whole wave of, of uh, wonderful musicians who came from Europe, refugees from yeah. the Second World War, and they were populating the conservatories so that you had this amazing teaching staff and then you had this very common idea that music was important and part of education. So that's what I grew up with. Now, how does somebody end up going off to the University of Chicago at just 15? You had been an excellent student all around, or it was because you it were... It wasn't particularly excellent, but that wasn't the point. I discovered my mother was a librarian at the school where I was going to high school, and I would wait around to get a ride home from her. We all shared rides with other people. So at any rate... I spent my time browsing through the college catalogs to see where I might be going someday. And by, this is really by accident. I was looking at the University of Chicago and I discovered that the admission was by uh, examination and that high school completion was irrelevant. <laughs> they didn't really care about right. that. So I decided to send away for the, the entrance exam. And, you know, we had advisors and they said, oh, well, this, I said to my mom, don't, don't worry. He can't possibly pass, but it's a good experience. Right, right, right. Well, I did pass. <laughs> and then, then, the, then the question was, what was going to happen? Now, I discovered many years later, I thought it was my father who want, would allow me to go, and my mother would want me. It was the opposite. <laughs> my mother, being a teacher herself, saw an opportunity for a, a great education, and she was the one that supported my leaving, and I left home when I was 15. So you graduated at 19, and what I understand her feeling was at that point, you were thinking about, do I go to New York? Do I go to Juilliard? She was not especially enthusiastic about that oh, idea, no, right? That's, <laughs> uh, no. She, <laughs> I wrote a book some not too long ago called um, Words Without Music, and the very first thing in the book is the story of my mother meeting me when I'm 19, seeing me at 19, and said, Mom, I'm going off to musical. And she said, well, if you go to music school, you'll end up like your Uncle Henry, traveling from hotel to hotel and never having a place of your own. And actually, my Uncle Henry was a drummer up in the what we call the Borschbad in the hotels up in, in, in the Catskills. I actually thought Uncle Henry was a pretty good guy, <laughs> but the rest of my family thought he was a disaster. Right. But I didn't. And she said, and you'll, spend, and you'll spend the rest of your life traveling. And I thought... That sounds great. And there you well, go. Now, now at 80, I have spent my life traveling. <laughs> Number one, mom was absolutely right. right. That is what happened. Right. And I'm actually starting to get tired. But again, at 80, I think you might get tired You're, of being... Uh, doing anything. You might be, be tired of doing astrophysics <laughs> right, or, right. or even course. running a company. There's a certain fatigue with age that counts. But I don't regret it at all. I, I mean, that was what I did. And... I can tell you more about the stories about her, but she was a wonderful woman. Now, if you hadn't gone to the Peabody Conservatory or Juilliard, would you still have found your way into music anyway, do you think? I'm sure I would have. But I had the idea uh, when I was in Chicago that if I was going to go to music school, I would go to the best school in the country. So the choice was, it seemed to me, I had to go to Juilliard. Mm -hmm. Now, I had no qualifications to enter Juilliard. So when I went there... I could play the flute, and I had been writing music, but I didn't want to show them the music I was writing. And they said, look, you can register as a non-matriculated, it means I can register for courses, but I wasn't in the school. Right. And they said, in one year, you show us your music, and we'll decide. Well, I found out later that they told everybody that, <laughs> but no one actually got accepted, right. except that time I did. Wow! I wrote wow, wow. 12 pieces. I wrote a piece every month. 
um, a little bit quicker than a month. I could write every three weeks. And I showed up a year later with a stack of composed compositions. I don't know what they thought. I think they said, well, any kid that's going to work that hard, let's give give them a chance. Yeah, right. So I got into the school. I wanted to be in a place where the music world was alive and well in New York. And there were, was a very good school to go to. And I thought I might be able to meet some really good composers, and I did. What was the dream end goal at that time when you came out of Juilliard? If you could have done anything, or while you were even at Juilliard, what were you dreaming of doing with your well, life? I was actually dreaming of going to Paris and finishing my studies with Nadia Boulanger. But I very stupidly, I got a grant from, was it the Ford Foundation? to be? A, they had a residency of composers in the schools. And I said, well, I'll do that one, and I'll go next year. And they said, no, you have to reapply next year. So I took the chance, and I right. I took that. It was in Pittsburgh, and I had a great time there. And they asked me to renew it. So, And then I said, well, what happens? So well, if you renew it, you'll have to apply again. So I was actually, I got the Fulbright three times. Wow, oh, my and God. And the third time I went, which was really, I mean, that was really. <laughs> I'm so, glad you got to use it at well, least at some point. <laughs> I, I, I Thinking back on it, that was a ludicrous thing to do. I should have just gone to Paris immediately. But as it was, I got to Paris at the age of 25 instead of 22. And that changed your life, that whole chapter, right? Because well, you've talked about that she there She was were, a great master teacher. Well, it was her and another. You've said that the way you've described it, I think, in your book, that you to this day feel that there were two great teachers in your life and one of them is always sort of standing on each shoulder. Yes, uh, that's right. That's can right. you tell who well, these people were well, and how was you... Out, one of the things that happened in Paris, I discovered that the Fulbright wasn't a, a, a very generous. <laughs> I, I needed to supplement right, that money. Right, and I began right. working uh, in movies and I got hired to work with Ravi Shankar as his assistant. Now, when you say you began working in movies, what, did, what in what capacity? Well, in different ways. In the beginning, I was just uh, his assistant. Later, I was doing doublage. That means where you put the voices onto the... I learned amazing things. Later on, when I did a piece called La Belle La Bette, I was able to write a score that matched the lips of the singers. Oh, my God. I, I understood that the labial is where the lips come together. Right. That if, if you hit the labial about once every minute and a half, anyone who sees it will think that it's in sync. <laughs> and that's what we were doing. So I actually learned how to do that years before I wrote the piece. Some years later, I decided I wanted to write, take this idea, and I was using it, and it, and it became La Bella La Bella. That's so funny. Which, by the way, is, is coming to L.A. at that oh, time. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, so tell us, though, about these two people who had such a profound impact well, on your life. How did you first cross paths with each of them, and well, what was their lasting impact on you? The teacher that I was supposed to be studying with was, well, and I did study with her, but again, uh, I was always looking for improving my living standard a little bit. And by luck, I was invited to be Ravi Shankar's assistant on a movie. So I took the job. Right. And then, then I had another personality equally as engaging and, and masterful in, in his field as she was. That period, it seemed like I had two angels on my shoulder, one on my left and one on my right. One taught through fear and one taught through love. Nadia Boulanger was through... I'm not going to say which one was through. Oh, you're not going to tell you, me. But you, but you <laughs> can, can figure, figure that out. out. And I have to say that in the end, the methodology didn't matter. Right. Uh, they were both masters of, of music, and I learned from both of them. So it was because of Ravi that you ended up, after this period in, in Paris, traveling then throughout Central Asia and studying things like 
Buddhism and yoga and things like that, right? I had actually started that at Juilliard. At uh, the age of 20, a friend of mine and I, we heard there was something called yoga, but we didn't know what it was. Now, yeah. this is 1957. Sure. So there weren't any yoga studios in New York, as far as we could tell. So we were anxious to figure out what this was. So I looked, finally looked into the white pages under Y, <laughs> and there was a guy there, Yogi Vitaldis, <laughs> who turned out to be... A yoga instructor. Uh, uh, he turned out to be the teacher of... Uh, uh, human, human, human. Okay. Well, I did at the time. I had no idea that that was the case. <laughs> but so, you, you were open to a lot of these things even before Ravi. But Ravi ex- exacerbated. I'm that. open today to those things. To those things. I mean, yes. I'm, I'm still uh, discovering. I mean, there are many more things to learn that I will be able to live to see all of them. But I still, I'm, I'm taking up disciplines and things that interest me. I tend to add them to what I'm doing so that my daily activities it's hard for me to get done by midnight I, uh-huh. there are a lot of things to do and music certainly is one but uh, the things I learned from Yogi Vitalis and other people that's always been part of my world that's great so it's it's just the way I've lived now when you return to the states and I guess specifically to New York I think in 1967 from what I've read you had to face the reality that I think most aspiring composers have to face which is that it's very hard to make a living and do your work. No, not completely true. You can take a job teaching. You didn't I, want to do that. I didn't do that. Well, the reason I didn't was that I was, it's because of my contact with Ravi. He was a composer and a performer. So now I had seen that already. I'd seen that with John Coltrane. I'd seen it with Bud Powell. When I was living in Chicago, I would go down to the Beehive. It was a place on 55th Street, I think it was. That was in the 50s, mind you. So that was 53, 54, 55. And Charlie Parker was there, and, wow. and, and Billie Holiday was at the, uh, she was on Cottage Grove. I had already come into contact, and not just them, but downtown, of course it would be like that. The white musicians played in a different club. Right. I think it was called the Modern Modern Jazz Club. It was downtown. And I would hear Stan Getz there. And so I had been instructed through what I saw that the composer could be a performer. So when I came back from Paris, that was the model that I chose. And the idea of teaching, though, had a particular lack of appeal as well. Growing up with my mother was a wonderful woman, but all her friends were teachers. And I consider them the most boring people in the world. Now, that's really not fair, of, of course. I, they were, I'm sure there were wonderful people among sure. them, too. Right. But at 13 and 14 and 15, I was not interested in my mother's friends. Right. And to me, being a teacher meant a life of drudgery. Right. Now, I didn't understand that it was a vocation, a vocation, right. a, a very high vocation, too, right. like medicine. Right. Teaching is one of the great things that we can do. I didn't, at that time, at, at 14 and 15, I had no idea like that. How did you pay the bills during those years when you were first well, back in the States? I did what everyone did. I got uh, all kinds of day work, and that went on until I was maybe 41 or 42. Give us a few examples. There are some colorful well, you ones. Know, don't romanticize this. Everybody did this. All I right, mean, people, okay, but you, know, you did well, what? Well, 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 we, I had a moving company with my cousin, Gene. I had a plumbing company with my cousin, Gene. Actually, my cousin, Gene, and I, he was a sculptor. Right. So he was in the same boat I was. Right. We had no, we didn't have a weekly paycheck, so we did whatever we could. We moved furniture, then we did plumbing. Then I left that because I discovered that it was very hard on my hands. I'm sure. I was working for well-known uh, artists and I, they, who became my lifelong friends, of mm-hmm. course. Cab driving, so the, though, right? That was well, another one. Well, that was, it seemed like a good idea. However, <laughs> the difficulty was that at that time, 
in New York now, we're really talking about the early 70s now, 74, 75. Cab drivers were being robbed and sometimes murdered at the rate of six or seven a year. It doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're the guy that's going in to pick up the cab... <laughs> it doesn't sound it, good. It, it, in those days, we didn't have a partition between the back and the front, so it was much more vulnerable. But the appeal of those kinds of jobs was that you could well, basically could make on, your own schedule, right? I could go on tour for three weeks with my ensemble, which had already been working since maybe 1969 and 1970. Mm-hmm. I could do that and come back and go back to work. All these other jobs were part... They were jobs that I could do simply by putting an ad in the paper, and it right. was easy to get work then. You didn't need a lot of money to, to, to live on. The big difference now is that today, young people have to work five or six days a week. In those days, you could work three days a week, and you could pay your rent, it. and you had, yeah. it was much easier. And when people asked me how I did it, and the young people, I said, well, actually, it was much harder for you than for me. Yes. It was really easy. Well, let me ask you, and this is a a long-winded question, but I think it's necessary. When you came back here again, it was about 1967, and then I think for roughly the next decade, maybe give or take a a year or two in either direction, you began making a, a sort of music that has been labeled minimalism. I think that you are still very closely associated with that, but I know that you want to emphasize that that was really just that decade of your life and now you revisit it at concerts and things but that was a specific period a specific time so for people who may not know can you explain what exactly minimalism is because it's been described by some as quote the last big idea close quote in classical music and also just how you arrived at at doing it i've never tried to explain it because i always thought the whole thing was a Naming things out that way was not useful. But looking back on it, you have to remember I had a very close association with artists at the same time. And the art world was going through an interesting moment when instead of the content of a work would not be an image, it would be a process. Jackson Pollock. Well, Jackson Pollock would be one, but a little bit later it could be Saul LeWitt, Mm -hmm. and a little bit later would be a friend of mine my age or a little bit younger than me, Richard Serra. So now, what you have to look at it this way. The idea was to relieve the art world or the music world of being fixated on an image, like a face or a table with fruit on it, or maybe a melody that you can sing easily. The idea was that, well, if you don't have that, then what do you have? And so we began working, and I was very closely associated with the artists because I was working for some of them. They always made money before the musicians did, so they could be... They might be in the Castelli Gallery, making getting a, a stipend every month, and then they would hire me to. Richard, I used to work for him for, for years. Now, the music incarnation of this, though, the way it's been described by one person, maybe tell me if this is wrong, but quote pattern changing over long tracks of time, filtered through electric organs and saxophones and insistent beat of pop, repetition, as in the music of. I guess there are some old masters that you could say. But basically, the, the repetition aspect I want to ask you about. That's not a bad description. It's not? No. But explain the repetition because... Well, well for, that's another way to say it. It was more like theme and variation. What happened is that it wasn't actually repetition. Actually, what we discovered, I had an ensemble about that time. If you play the same music over and over again, no one would listen to it. <laughs> but if you kept changing it, but slowly the hearer would be able to follow the music more easily so the question it wasn't it was actually never a repetition it was it was about mutation 
mutation. But that escaped most people because they they weren't aware of the fact that, that it was changing. But where in you did this come from? Was it something well, that you'd learned from Ravi? I learned or? a lot of it from Indian music. There's another interesting thing. I was talking, not too long ago, I was talking, giving a talk with a percussionist from India. We were talking to a group of people, and they were talking, he was talking about Indian music, and I, I inter- it was my turn to talk, and I said, by the way, you understand that Indian music is a binary language. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, it all comes down to twos and threes. Twos and threes are like zeros and ones, odds and evens. That's what I learned from Robert and that's what, uh, for, and Alaraka was his percussionist, and I st- actually studied with Alaraka. So there wasn't somebody in this country who you could point to and say, I'm doing something similar to this person. No. It was really about no, I, India. It wasn't similar. It was identical. Right. And and it wasn't anything that was I could have learned it uh, in New Haven or right. in uh, right. or in Boston or in Cambridge. It, right. No one was doing it. I knew it because through my contact with Ravi, I went to India after that and spent some time, not a lot of time, three or four months the first time. But over the next 25 years, I probably went 20 times to India. Wow. Wow. And I spent time with the Katakali in the south. I went to the uh, uh, big concerts in, in, in Bombay and New Delhi and in Calcutta. And I, my friends, uh, a man, Narayana Menon, who was the head of the National Theater in Bombay at the time, he became a friend of mine. He was an older man. And we would go to the concerts together. And we went down to Madras and to the uh, annual music festival. This was always at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And he sat next to me, and, he, and by clapping his hand, he, he taught me how to listen to the music. And you never forgot that? Never. And then I started with all rock, and I began trying it. But the point was, is that when I was talking this part years later, mm-hmm. and I realized that, and I said it without even thinking, I hadn't, the thought hadn't emerged in, in any way until that moment. I said, actually, Indian music is binary music. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well... And I just said it because I knew that from Alaraka. And he said, oh, yeah, that's right. I said, that's like the zeros and ones of, of a binary language. I said, I don't think it was intentionally so. And yet the idea of building up structures out of zeros and ones, which is, right. that is computer language, you know, yeah. that was existing in, in India for hundreds of years. Now, what you've done with that understanding and with all the great work that you've done today I think it's it's overwhelmingly loved and embraced and studied but that was not always the case there was a time when the music world when you were first coming up really sort of shunned you and I wonder why was that and why did it change well what we were taught when we were young people at whatever school it could have been Columbia or it could have been at Juilliard or whatever wherever you were we were taught that modern music would follow a certain pattern. It was going to follow the music of Schoenberg and Webern and Berg, and uh, there would be new composers like Boulez and so forth. But we were basically part of that school, that lineage. My generation said, you know what? We don't think so. Mm-hmm. And we changed the argument. And uh, I changed it by using a radically different structure. And though we talked about this uh, binary language as being common in India, it was not. We're talking about the 60s now. Well, well before the computer age where this language became known. We didn't even know what a binary language was. I knew what it was because I was working with it. I had begun, Einstein on the Beaches is completely a binary piece. 
Completely. Just for anyone who hasn't yet been fortunate enough to discover, let's just note this was your first opera, 1976, five hours. Well, you have to understand something. Yes. It was so radical that very well-educated, smart people couldn't hear it. So what were the people who, who didn't get you, what were they hearing? They thought they were hearing the same thing over and over again. Did that bother you? True. Oh, I didn't care. What I, I didn't care what they thought. I wasn't teaching at any of their schools. Right. It didn't matter to me at all. And in fact, you've said that the, the reason that the argument has gone away is what? The people that are now in power. Well, they're all dead. The people that were in power are dead, and the people who are in power are the ones who grew up on your music. Yeah, that's right. Don't worry about the people who hate your music. They'll die. <laughs> you just got to outlast them. That's yeah, the, no, and that's easy to do because right. they're in their 50s and 60s. You're in your 20s and 30s. Right. And take it easy. <laughs> you know what? It turned out to be absolutely true. Yeah. And how can it be otherwise? Right. That's just, it's not a law of nature. It's right. nature itself. So 41 years ago, almost a half a lifetime basically ago, Einstein on the beach comes along. You didn't come along. You made, you made it come along. It was a huge thing that today is still considered one of your masterpieces. And I just wonder, did you know in the making of it, how early on did you realize you were onto something well, you know, special? The, the reality was that my audiences were, for years, were very small. However, they were real. I had a, a big studio, we called it a loft, a loft, on the corner of Bleecker and Elizabeth Street, a number 10 Elizabeth Street. It's not there anymore. It's now a condominium, which would <laughs> probably cost you a couple million dollars right, to right. buy. But in those days, I could rent it for $150. Wow. So we had concerts every Sunday. It was just our, our what we did, my ensemble, and people came. And Murray I, Anderson, I, I was reading. You had a whole crew of people we, that... People, I Look, I had an audience. They were following my music. I was doing music in 12 parts, and every two months there would be a new part, part three, and then I would put up signs around Soho, Part four this Sunday, <laughs> part five. I right. mean, I, Music of Twelve Parts became an, the sequence of pieces. I finished it, actually. It took me three years to finish it. Wow. But it was done. I had an audience, an audience that were interested in what I was doing. I had very good musicians to play with. You know what? I thought I was successful. And yet, you went, even after Einstein on the Beach, you went back to driving a cab. Well, it wasn't like ma- it changed well, overnight, I, right? I, I didn't say it was... Being famous and being rich is not the same thing. Right. Rich and famous is just a... That's kind of a joke from right. where I come from. <laughs> you can be famous and not have any money. Right. And neither had anything to do with who you, you were and what you did. It didn't really particularly bother me, though. At a certain point, I remember when I was 41 thinking... On my 41st birthday, I was thinking, I wonder how much longer I'm going to be doing this that was maybe cab driving doing music no no no, music was for sure okay but how much longer would i have to drive a cab within three or four months my cab driver license came up for renewal and i renewed it but i didn't drive anymore because what happened what really happened is i got a commission from the netherlands opera to write satyagraha which is basically about gandhi in south africa right Uh, bob wilson and i lost money on einstein well, with Sancho Graha, I got my first real commission, and it was from a Dutch opera company. So it was your not your first opera, Einstein on the Beach, but the second. It was the Sancho second one. That and then, but however, it only ran that this first production only lasted a couple of years. I don't think that piece was played again for about twelve or fifteen years. It turned out to be also too radical, but radical and it didn't sound like Einstein. And that was part of the problem was that people who liked Einstein, some of them didn't like Satyagraha because it didn't sound like Einstein. Yeah. But of course it didn't. Why would I? And I said, well, why would I write the son of Einstein? Right. Why would I do that? <laughs> but I continue. I was actually on a mission. I, I, the third opera was Akhenaten. 
And by the way, that I saw it here in Los Angeles. Recently. Uh, recently. Yeah. A, a production from the International Opera. Again, it was not like Satya Grahat. It wasn't right. like Einstein. So those three operas kind of launched me into the opera world. And people just didn't know how to categorize you. That always, disconcer- it's disconcerting to people. I, I wasn't, I'll be truthful, I wasn't very helpful. <laughs> First of all, uh, no one ever asked me, so right. I never explained it. Right. Now you're asking me. And, and it's now very people, interesting. Yeah, we talk about it, but for years, no one didn't say, well, how do you do this music? Right. I could have said additive process. I could have <laughs> used a lot of different words for right. it, but no one asked me, so I didn't say anything. I read that, Another key turning point for you was a conversation with Jerry Lieber, who people know from Lieber and Stoller. They did so many great, I guess, Elvis songs and other others as well, of course. But how did you cross paths with Jerry, and why was it such an important well, Jerry was a, uh, was married to a friend of mine, Barbara Rose, who was an art critic, and that's how I knew Barbara through the art world. We were out one night. I was out with him. I just had met him. And he said, Glass, he said, where are you from? I said, from Baltimore. And he said, Baltimore. He says, Baltimore. B A L D I M E R A. Baltimore. So he said, Baltimore. Right. Well, where'd you go to school? I said, I went to city. He said, I went to that school. He said, Was your mother the librarian? I said, My mother was the librarian. He said, Oh my God. <laughs> I can't believe this. This, this guy is much older than me. Right. He said, You know, your mother saved my butt. I said, Really? <laughs> he said, Well, I was in the school with a lot of Polish guys there, and a little Jewish kid got out of school and they beat the crap out yeah. of me. And he said, so I would go to the library, and your mother put me to work putting away books, and and by 4 o'clock, the kids were all gone, I could go home. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said, yeah, that sounds like, well, I, I, said, I was the kid at the back looking at the catalogs to go to see. Right. You know, we probably had cross pairs, yeah, and we yeah, didn't know yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. He paused for me, and he said, you know what, I'm going to change your life. I said, <laughs> really? How are you going to do that? He said, I'll tell you what, come down and see me at the Brill Building. I went to the Brill Building. I was so curious. I went down. You want me to tell you the whole story? Yeah, please. So I'm walking down the the hallway to his place. He installed Mike Stoller. All the Esri Prophets coasters, gold stars, gold star records all the way down, gold records all the way down. All the Elvis and Carole King and all that, right? Must have been 30 records there. And I walk into, he's sitting at his desk with his feet on the desk like this, you know, (laughs) relaxed. And he said, Sit down. He said, I said, I'm very impressed, Jerry. Did you, you did all this? He said, yeah. Mike did the music and I did the words. Yeah. So we own it together. He said, go over to that door and take a look. I said, what? He said, just open the door. And I opened the door and I saw about 24 desks with men and women at the desk and they had headphones on and they were writing things. He said, what do you think they're doing? I said, I have no idea. He said, they're finding money under stones. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He said, when someone takes a song that Mike and I have written and they sing it and it's on the radio, they have to pay us. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is they're, they're combing through the Play repertoire of the, yeah, of, yeah. This, of, the, of the... And he said, that's, this is how we make our money. And so we shut the door and he said, and I said, okay, I want you to go down to Center Street. It's 100 Center Street. It's still there. Mm-hmm. Go in there and I want you to register yourself as a publisher. Mm-hmm. He said, if you want to, you can register as a composer. It doesn't matter. Right. Make just sure you're a publisher. Right. Well, why would I do that? I said, well, if you're the publisher, you own the music. <laughs> he said, I own all my music. Right, right. And so I, we talked a little bit more, but I did, I think probably the next day, I went down to Center Street, and they said, do you want to do it as a DBA doing business as, yes. or do you want to be a licensed publisher? I said, I want to be a licensed publisher. <laughs> and for, I think, it's amazing, I think for $250, 
I was able to register as a publisher. And financially, it just changed everything. Well, not right away. Right. Let's say maybe 20 years later from that, I was asked to go up to see, went up to Shermer's at the time. They were, now they're owned by music sales, and, but at the time it was Shermer's. And I said, uh, they wanted to talk. I said, what do you want to talk about? They said, well, would you like to be published by us? I said, well, what's the deal? I said, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, what are you paying me? This is verbatim. Right. They said, oh, oh, no, we're not going to pay you anything. I said, well, why would I do that? (laughs) So the guy goes out. He comes back and he puts on the desk. He says, it's a piece by Copeland, a piece by Bernstein, a piece by Shostakov. He said, he shows me, he said, what do you think of that? He said, pretty good music. He said, <laughs> do you want to be with them? I said, why would I want to be with them? Yeah. They're... <laughs> you know, I said, I don't get it. Right. Said, What's the deal? He said, well, you can be, these are your colleagues. I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going home now. If you have an offer to make, you can write me a letter. If I don't reply, it's no. Right. right. And that was, a, that's the first and last time any publisher ever talked to me. Like that, because otherwise you, because the way well, it worked was that you were your master of your own. Well, I owned 100% of my work. My friends were owning 50% of their work. And so in a business in which it's increasingly hard for people who make music to also make money for that music, that was a, a, well, a key thing. I wrote a lot of music and some of it. And then we discovered what licensing music is. We figured out that people wanted music for movies. They wanted it for television. And I began to work with people. I hired someone to run the company, and they began selling the music to wherever they could. Yeah. And then we began with, we ended up with an income stream. We ended up with five or six people working for me. And basically, I was still performing. Most of my, uh, I would say, half my income is from playing and half is from writing. Wow. I want to talk about, when you when you talk about performing, it's often, it's with the like ensemble. A long story. No, it's great. I think it's a great story. It's a nice lesson for people to look out for themselves. You know what? Very few people listen to this story. Uh, I can't tell you how many composers I told this to, and they say, you know, we're like, I don't want to do that. It's, it's They'd their, rather give it up mistake. and let somebody else do it for them. Oh, my gosh. Well, when you talk about performing, what you've generally met is performing with your ensemble. and Yes, but I also know I'm doing other ensemble work. I'm doing also solo concerts, concerts with the pianists. The ensemble still exists, and the, right. the repertoire that was mostly composed between 1968 and maybe maybe 30 years, mm-hmm. that repertoire is still there, and we still play that It's the music. same core group of people. It's the same, many of the same people. Yeah. Two of them are Michael Reisman, the music director, was from 73, uh, but John Gibson started with me in 68, he's still playing. That's amazing. The reason I bring that up is that you have been described, I just saw one article in particular that had a nice comparison. They said you were the most collaborative composer since Stravinsky. You, you not only do the ensemble, but you also have teamed up with, in so many different ways on different things, with such a variety of musicians, from David Bowie to you name it. And so I want to ask you, why are many composers not that collaborative, and why are you drawn to collaborations like that? I can't answer the first question, but I can answer the second question. What I discovered was that the problem wasn't finding a style of music. That was easy. The problem was changing and developing. I was also working for financial reasons. I was working in theater. I was writing music for plays. 
I began writing music for operas and films. The films came along with Mishima. That was the first big one. But Even before Kayanis? No, Kaniskasi was first. That was 81. Okay. Misha was 87. Okay. I may be off by a year or here. But it was operas, then symphonies, starting with, the I think, the Bowie collaboration no. in the 80s, then ballets and film scores. So all of those other things, operas, maybe it's just you, right? Oh, well, here's the point. Okay. What I discovered was that what I was interested in was a gradual or any kind of uh, growth and change in the music. I wasn't interested in writing the same music over again. And I found out when I changed collaborators, the whole ball game changed. The whole field changed. So if I work with Bob was one thing, but I, after Einstein, I didn't work with Bob again for eight years. I worked with other people because I didn't want to, I didn't want to have a partner. I wanted to have other influences. Mm-hmm. And I think quite rightly so, that if I, different collaborators would bring different ideas. And did. So I, I had a rule of thumb. It was very simple. I never worked with the same person twice in a row. Mm-hmm. And often, not for years, mm-hmm. but... Let's say if you're working, you have a, a choreographer, a lighting person, someone who writes text. There are all these different things that come up in theater, comes up in dance, and even comes up in concert music. But I would keep one <laughs> because I wanted some continuity. Right, so so it, maybe it was the designer. But I not said, the okay, well, the next piece right. I do with the same designer. Right. But then he would be gone. Right. And then the next one I would might keep. I might keep the director. I was often in a position of choosing that because I was. I thought of the projects myself whether it was like doing Le Bet, a story of, of Cocteau's, mm-hmm. or a, a piece with Allen Ginsberg, a hydrogen jukebox. I did a lot of these collaborative works. And the point was that when I was engaged with a fellow author or a fellow collaborator, yeah. invariably I had a new problem to solve. Yeah. The most radical one was, for example, I wanted to work with Fode Mososuso, who was a chora player from the Gambia. A chora is a, it's a harp-like instrument. Mm-hmm. It's not very big, but it's the major instrument of that country. And just finding a common language with him, when he walked into the room, he didn't even call the notes by the same names. Right. I mean, we were really in another world. Right. And that led me also into doing more and more work with indigenous people. I'm working now with a couple of wonderful musicians from Mexico who live in the mountains. They don't even speak Spanish. Now, what's at the root of this openness, this curiosity, which not not everybody has? Stop me if it's too personal, but I mean, I, I believe you're a, a Buddhist practicing person. Is you it something in there? Like, but I'm not going to agree with you. Okay, okay. Yeah. But is there? Could it be something as rooted as in you as that? What, See, what? When, you, when you put on a label, then I'm stuck with it. Okay. But why not say you do yoga, or you're, you're, you're doing tai chi, or you're doing okay. who knows? Okay. But so we don't. I don't. I don't join clubs like that. Okay. On the other hand, I belong to a lot of clubs. Right. <laughs> All right, you diagnose it then. Why are you more open than most people to things like that? The system worked very well for me. Mm-hmm. When I worked with the Fode, it changed how I wrote. I played music. Mm-hmm. I had to play differently in order to play with this instrument. And, I be, I be, and so my language became altered. It happened almost with any kind of a writer I work with. Part of the description of the work to the table is different. It can be a writer it could be a designer. It could be a choreographer. I've worked with a lot of dancers, but never with two pieces in a row. So I've worked with Twyla Tharp. I've worked with Melissa Finley. I've worked with all kinds of sure. dance companies. And when I go to work with a dance company, I'll go to look at the... The first thing I want to do is I go look at the dance. And I say, what about this dance is interesting to mm-hmm. me? And that becomes part of the language I work in. Yeah. So the reason I do it is because it works so well. Yeah. Here's what I've discovered. The best thing is to be in a 
place where you don't actually know what you're doing. It doesn't scare you. Well, what's even more scary is not being able to write music at all. Right. That would be scary. Right. But this doesn't produce that. It has the other effect. It makes it requires invention. It requires that you change what you're doing. Right. So now the funny thing is that it didn't actually negate what I had just done. It just added to sure. it. So sure. that at this point, these symphonies, symphony number nine and not ten or eleven, they have all kinds of things in them which are reminiscent of other things, but they're all together different. I think, and I'm told that the music always sounds like me, which in a way surprises me, but in another way, it indicates that there's a core to the music which connects to some kind of a musical personality that seems to allow for continuity. Sure. At the same time, Darwin will tell you this continuity and change is the story of life. <laughs> That's the whole business. Mutation and natural selection. That's what it is. I want to ask you about film scoring because I think that Obviously, that's what brings you to town today, the connection to that. And I'm going to get to Jane specifically, but I want to ask you, let's just note, first of all, your film scores include the likes of Kundun, The Hours, Notes on a Scandal, each of which brought you an Oscar nomination, and others that easily could have, like The Truman Show. So just an overall question, big picture question, how is film scoring most similar and also most different from the other types of composing that you do? It's an intensely collaborative form. And also when I come here to work, almost always I don't know who the editor is. I don't know the music editor. I don't know the producer. There's just too many. It's, uh, yeah. The film that we're doing now, Brad Morgan, he wanted me. He didn't want someone who sounded like me. He wanted me. And that's because he said he wanted his movie to sound like, quote, a cinematic opera, close quote. So that means he thinks immediately of Philip Glass. Thankfully, I'm very happy yes. for that. So that I, got, that I got a nice job out of that. Right. But I didn't know him before then. Right. So now that was an interesting collaboration because he brought, that's a whole different personality. I'd never met him before. The name of the game with, with music is you write the music you want to write and you try to get it into the film. Mm-hmm. And it's not that the director is resistant to it, but they have ideas too. So then basically some of the ideas will work. He'll, he can change a little bit. You can change a little bit. He had some very good ideas. I had some very good ideas. He liked some of my ideas. I liked some of his ideas. We ended up with a score. Right. We ended up with a score, which we both could. But it's not just the, the director. What I'm impressed with is the uh, the depth of talent in, in Hollywood. People think it's a commercial play. Oh, yeah, okay. In a certain way, you're talking about, you're describing one part of the salad. It's not the whole salad. Right. But what you're also talking about is a, a variety of talented people in, in acting and lighting and editing. This is, the, the I think, the capital. I don't think there's any question about that. And another part of the salad that you have played in a lot is documentaries. And I and it's the case with Jane, but it's also been the case most frequent, I think your most frequent film collaborator is Errol Morris. And some great documentaries dating back to The Thin Blue oh, Line. I love working with, with Errol. And just so you know it, we fight like dogs and cats <laughs> when we're writing, when I'm doing a piece for him. You can't put it's afterwards. It's comical, and the, the scores always come out right. Yeah, and there's yelling and screaming going on. It's like a hell's kitchen going on. Well, he but said the, he discovered you by attending a performance of music in twelve parts 
40 something years ago oh, and, so. and he said he's been in love ever since but he said you seemed surprised that he was a musician i didn't know he's a musician he, he went to juilliard as a cellist i had no idea and in fact i hold that against him because <laughs> he he would say could you please send me uh all the drafts I, I like to play on the piano i mean no one does that no. and it's that's really a pain in the butt <laughs> to have the, the director say, I'm going to play the, your, uh, you your know, music on the piano, right? No, I don't mind. I'm not interested in his expertise. <laughs> uh, and, but, but it does so, it, it, what it does reveal that he has a connection to music that's deep. And you have a connection to documentaries. Why? Is it because you want to, well, you'll pick documentaries to work on because you su- support their message? No, there are less people bothering you. On documentaries. <laughs> I mean, when I worked on The Hours, Scott Rudin was working as the producer. His input was crucial. He was a very smart guy. And the film got better because he beat us up all the time. You don't mind getting constant notes to be look, polite? The proof is in the pudding. Sure. You know, when it comes down to that, when I look back on, I've done several things with him. I think most were a scandal with, with Scott. He's a producer, really. Yeah. He's very funny. He wants to hear the cues. He said, let me hear this cues. I said, he said, that's wonderful, wonderful. And he paused and he said, but there's one little thing. As soon as he says that, I know I have to rewrite the whole thing. the whole thing. <laughs> but, but still, the point was is that, that when I say this is a collaborative medium, that it depends on the people. You have to have people who have imagination and talent and understand the medium. You've said that with the exception of Errol, quote, I worked with these directors once, but they usually don't want to work with me again, close quote. Why would you say that? Well, it's probably because they can't find the money. Oh, yeah. The but that's, an, that's another story. Right, right. But I liked uh, documentary filmmakers. In fact, there's a, a documentary film composer is kind of a, it's not a club exactly. It's a, they, they function as a group in a way. And they yeah. have an office. And, they, and I do a benefit concert for them at a bar almost every year. Oh, that's great. Uh, I, I like working with... You know, I think of uh, documentary filmmakers like poets. Mm-hmm. Basically, they work their butts off and don't pay any attention to what they do. Right. <laughs> well, they, they basically, most documentary film, that's not true of this film. Right. Most documentary film, their audiences are each other. Right. To be truthful. Right. If you get it on TV, it's because you don't even get paid for it. No. It's, no. It, it's, it's a free showing. On the other hand, I find them, like poets, uh, with a tremendous passion for what they do. Also, the other thing about documentary filmmakers, they don't have enough money to fire you. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, They're kind of stuck with you. So, so then you get through all the, the tough parts without getting fired. <laughs> well, let's talk about the, this one, Jane, in particular, because why did you agree to do it? And I understand that you did it without working from a even a, forget about a final cut, you were working from very pretty raw footage, oh. right? Oh, he was. We were working kind of almost right next to each other. Uh, first of all, I had seen enough of the footage to see that it was a beautiful, beautifully shot film. The people in the film are interesting. The animals are. The whole thing is unusual. Mm-hmm. Besides that, somehow National Geographic had commissioned this mm-hmm. some years ago. It had gone through a kind of. I don't know what the process was, but it, it's the original film. I guess it's been digitalized and yeah, it's been improved. Up, and yeah. When you look at it now, it looks like it was filmed last month. Yep. It looks like it's a modern film. And in many ways, of course, it is. Mm-hmm. But in the same way, it has the same virtue of longevity that Jane herself has. Yes. It's still her. Yeah. You know, she's from 23 to 83. Yeah. Same person. But Brett managed to cross to get out of the documentary film ghetto. 
Yeah, right. He got all of it, and he said, "He said, I, he said, I don't know how we did it. It's, it's but amazing. It, but I think it was a question of it was a tremendous material to work with. He had a, a good knack of how knowing how to put it together. She trusted him, and they worked very well together. We worked well together. We had different ideas sometimes, but we always came to a solution. And I suspect, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I suspect that you may have felt a particular. Maybe even not consciously. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But a connection to Jane. Let's note you're roughly the same age. You've both been doing what you love for almost your entire lives. The work that you do, that you each do, is very solitary a lot of the time. Did you connect to her? Forget about the animals. Well, you put it that way. I, I have to agree. <laughs> but I didn't think of it that way. It I thought of it. Uh, I was very intrigued by this young woman that I saw. She spent the first three months waiting to even to see the chimpanzees. Finally, one of them led her back to the to where they were all living. Most people wouldn't have... She was sitting around with binoculars waiting for something to happen, and she just sat and waited. And she... I, I don't know, you'd have to ask her what gave her the strength to do that. But the strength to do that will also tell you the strength that kept her there for the next 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. however long it was. Yeah, It's interesting. She had a... Uh, from the movie, you can see that I have hardly talked to her. I only met her briefly just a little while ago. Today? Yeah. Oh, my God. But she she talked about this was that she had always wanted to do. Long before she, she got the job, she always wanted to go to Africa and live with animals and to, to study it. And that is what she ended up doing. And So there's a, you know, that's the kind of integrity that composers have. Mm-hmm. You want to write music, you don't know who's going to hear it, you don't know where it's going to go. But you know that's what you're going to do. do well, that's to me. It's like same, it's a very similar personality, and so of course it's easy to identify with it. And uh, the film itself is physically so beautiful. Yes. I talked to Brad and to her. We both said we can't believe that we're at the Hollywood Bowl and it's sold at a concert. How can that happen Just to a documentary a few film? Hours tonight, yeah. And yet, uh, I think that we it was like we were too close to the rose to see what. The rose look like, yes. you know, we couldn't see we couldn't see it because of being too close to it. But if we move back from it a little while, you can see the qualities oh, that the film had were there for us to see. All along, yeah. We didn't even talk about it. When I talked with Brett, we were talking about the technical things, how scenes work together, how long they should be, how many themes there should be. These are things that filmmakers and composers can talk about. Let's talk about your specific challenge here, because it seems like. There's actually two movies here in this in That's this exactly one movie. Right. Well, take it away, please. Well, there, there's the big picture, which is, which is the the huge savannas with thousands of animals. Then there are the intimate scenes with her, not only with the chimpanzees, but with her husband and her with the cinematographer. They got married during the yeah. filming of it, right. and her son later on. Right. And so the epic have, and the intimate, right? You have the intimate and the, and the epic, but in a certain way, you can swap them around. <laughs> you could right. say maybe the epic is really the domestic scene and the intimate is the savannah. I mean, and so you, you can make that, that argument too. Did you mix that up? Uh, you would not mix no, it up, I but didn't. did you? I, I didn't, I, because when I saw these images of the thousands of animals, uh, of course it was filmed from a distance, but with photographic lenses and that. Yeah. I don't know how many thousand feet he was away from it, but he couldn't have been anywhere near no. them. If they had observed him either through smell or through sight they would they would he wouldn't have been there right they would have he would have been there alone right. i don't think they would have attacked <laughs> they would have disappeared right 
when I looked at those scenes and I said, there has to be a big theme here. There has to be something big here. And I rewrote that theme a couple of times and there were two different ones. And that comes in different places in the movie. And then when I was working on the more intimate scenes, I wanted to have something that would be like a leitmotif for the... But the characters were too different. I mean, Hugo, when he first shows up, smoking cigarettes and <laughs> looking like a... Kind of a little bit out of place, right. out of his own. Right. And then you see him later in the film when he has now become part of, this, part of the, the process. It's too complex. Sure. So it calls for more for different music at different places. But I was aware all the time of what, let's say, what the scale of the movie is at any place. And, and if you look at it just from that point of view, you can, you can make a graph of what the picture's going to like. Brad was very aware of that. He knew, all, he knew exactly what he was doing and how he did it. And I only su- really surprised him once, and he liked the surprise a lot. What was that? Uh, one of the first early themes, uh, when she was alone in, uh, for the first time in Africa. Yeah. And I... He suggested one theme, and I wrote. I just wrote a different one, and he said, "Oh, that's great." He was. It was okay. Yeah. He was okay with it, but 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 most of the time, I would say, I knew that we were looking at the same movie. Right. I mean, the problem is if you're looking if two people looking at a different movie, then you're then you got in a trouble. But I think we both. Uh, I mean, I, I shared with him his admiration for Jane, and for the virtually heroic quality of her life because she lived alone a lot yeah. of the time. Eventually, her mother shows up. That's a wonderful part, when right. her mother comes and lives with her for a while. Right. But many of those early years, she was alone. Well, with our last two minutes here, I wonder if we can do something that I, I, we call rapid fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind when, in response to a few different prompts. So first thing, where does the music actually come from? What, what is your main inspiration? The picture. The picture. And not, you know, I'm talking about for anything you do. No, it, to me, uh, it's different. With a film, uh, when I see the picture, I want to know. What, I ask myself, what is the music that goes here? I don't ask, what is the music I want you to hear? That's right. a different question. Right. I say, what music belongs to that picture? And if I if I look at it, and sometimes I don't get it right away, but that's where it will come from. Where do you write most of the time? Oh, I write in my music room at home, uh, but I I can write in hotels. I'm on the road. Not so much. I'd say 80, 90 days a year. That's not that bad. I mean, That's a, lot. a lot of people are doing 200 days. I don't do that much. But I'm not home, and then I, I bring music with me, and I can... Or sometimes, I'll, I'll, when I go to Europe, I'll stay on American time and write all night, have breakfast in the morning with everyone else and go to sleep, get up <laughs> at noon and have breakfast. And it's, it kind of works, works that way. Who, if anyone, is your sounding board before you share your music with the world? Whose whose feedback, if anyone, matters to you? Well, the wonderful woman I'm with is Sawa Tsukata. Okay. She's the first one to hear it. There (laughs) you go. What is the role of fame in your life? It's a big nuisance. Yeah? You know, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. I can't tell you how many selfies that you have to do. (laughs) It's, It's the epidemic. I mean, it's much worse than than just signing a book right. because they never get it right the first time. No, I didn't get it. Let me do it again. <laughs> and you can't pull, And they said, well, what are you going to do with it? It right. goes. To, I guess it goes on to face, Facebook. That's uh, it. Are you... Uh, okay. Uh, I, what do I think of that? It's, it's a complete nuisance. Of all the mediums, media in which you've worked, if you could only work in one, which would it be? Oh, it would be opera. It would be opera. Why? It doesn't close everything else. There, okay. You know, it has... Uh, we have text, 
we have image, we have movement, and we have music. Great answer. The, the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Are you ever tempted to try to write something that would be popular with the kids? You know, could and could oh, you... I've done it. I've written music for that. For kids, okay. You've noted before, not it didn't sound at all bitter, but you just noted you haven't necessarily won some of the prizes that you would people would assume you have won the pulitzer the macarthur the oscar you've said of the oscar quote they needed people like me to get nominated so that the people who won look good i said you can't have a winner without having losers okay, okay. let's get some more succinctly and quite the point okay so so would an oscar mean something to you i, I don't think i'm gonna get an oscar anytime i'm just not uh, i think i have a i have a role to play in hollywood and there's a reason why i'm there when i get nominated because People like the hours, or people like Kundun, but it's not going to be in the mainstream. It means I'm, I'm simply not going to be there. But that doesn't... Actually, when I go to the Oscars, I go like a very Oscar. I go, to, I go to see what people are wearing, what they're doing. <laughs> we, I have a good time. I've taken my sister there. I've taken my brother there. I've, I mean, you know... It's I, a fun I, night. I usually get a guest to come with me. Last three. Who's the greatest living classical composer other than Philip Glass? Arvo Park. Arvo Park. Oh. That's an easy one. It's an easy. Like you, oh, I was amazed I, how quickly you gave that answer. Oh, a lot of people will tell you that. Why, at, at the core, do you continue to make music even long after you could have retired and rested on your laurels? You've made a, well, you've made I, a lot I of money. I didn't go into music to even have laurels. I didn't go into music to make money. Right. So those aren't. They don't signal anything to me at all. Right. I write music because I want to hear what's going to happen next. And lastly, setting aside all humility, what do you think your legacy will be what do you hope it will be many years from now when we're all gone i I, i've trained myself not to think about that because it's just a waste of time now is what matters well i I would like satyagraha to be the piece that people remember but i'm not sure that that will be true satyagraha is a opera about social change and nonviolence. i do a lot of things uh political issues come up in a lot of the opposite opera about or called uh appomattox about the voting rights act I did an opera with The Trial by Kafka, which is about corruption in government. I'm very interested in social issues. And one of the reasons I write operas is that that's one of the places where social issues can, can easily become part of the part of the work. Well, um, I so appreciate this. I can't wait to see you tonight at the Hollywood Bowl. And thank you for doing this. Really Happy appreciate to be here. it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family 
cannolis and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.